Welcome everyone to Business Growth on Purpose. My name is Jose Palomino. I'm CEO of Value Prop Interactive. And it is my great pleasure every week to be interviewing experts from around the world, owners of other B2B businesses, and sometimes just sharing some of my personal insights from decades of helping businesses grow on purpose. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. Jose Palomino with another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. And today's guest has, as he puts it, been around the block. He's done a lot, and he works with owner, owners and their leadership teams on really navigating change. So we're going to talk about a couple of significant changes that are happening in the business universe today. And our guest, Larry Mandelberg, will speak into it, give us some insights, some good takeaways, some interesting stories. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let's welcome Larry right now to our show. And listen closely as we learn about the fact that businesses don't die, they commit suicide. Hope that gets your attention because that's what we're going to be talking about. Well, welcome, Larry, to Business Growth on Purpose. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, Larry, uh, for our audience, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and who you do it for. Jose, I've got a a nine-word answer and a 40-second answer. The nine-word answer is, We show business leaders how to survive their success. What does that mean? A business that isn't growing is dying. Yet businesses want stability. They want dependability, predictability. They exist in a world that laughs at those desires and is in a constant state of change and chaos. Additionally, growth is a form of change. So if you have to grow to survive, you have to change, have to. Mm-hmm. Those two realities, the desire for stability in an environment that isn't stable, creates constant conflict, and the world always wins. We show, we show business leaders how to leverage that change for sustainability and survive their success. Well, I, and I love the idea because it's it's so counterintuitive, the idea of surviving success, right? So like, you're doing well, you know, and I, I, I talked to probably business owners, in similar prior category, you know, owner led businesses and mostly in B2B. And I talked to people like after the pandemic, they said, well, you know, we're growing 30% year over year. Everything's fantastic. And I'm saying, really, you know, what, how, how are margins? Because you, you, you paid for that growth somewhere. Right. And, you know, those answers aren't as easily to, to, to come by. So I know a lot of the work you do, Larry, is around leadership and leadership teams. So that reality, that 40-second description of what you do, how much of that do you find that you really have to kind of, from the ground up, educate leadership teams to see the world that way? Because that's a, that's a different thought, to survive success. It seems like, well, you know, if I'm successful, what's there to survive? I'm already doing well. How, how do you help leadership teams see that need to maybe think a little differently? The good news is that I'm in a lovely place where I get to pick and choose my clients. And, you know, there's an old saying, I don't want more clients. I want better clients. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for 20 years and I've got a pretty doggone good suite of clients. Those people understand that if they're not their number one competitor, somebody else is, and they'd rather be the person that's competing against themselves rather than someone they don't know. They understand that there's always somebody looking to find a way to get ahead of them. So when I bring these ideas to them, 
they tend to be receptive. And rather than be resistant, they tend to say, talk to me about that. Help me understand that. Because all of my business comes from referral, literally. I do absolutely no marketing. I'm usually introduced to people that don't know me by someone that they have a lot of respect for. Gotcha. And it usually is around the, the concept of Larry's kind of an acquired taste. He's kind of <laughs> in your face. He's kind of direct. But you should listen to him because he brings interesting perspectives that you might find valuable. Now, that said, I have so many stories that I can tell people that they can relate to because of my breadth of experience. So when I run into that situation where there's resistance, I bring a story to the table. And mm -hmm. that always does it. Wow. So that, you know, stories are so powerful, right? Hearing how other people have, have uh, maybe hit that same inflection point and how they manage through it. So, you know, one of the things as we look at, and you talk about change and the rate of change, and we're now in some pretty unprecedented times, right? Just the last couple of years of the pandemic and how that changed business in some substantial ways in terms of how people communicate, obviously Zoom, everybody's Zooming and everybody's working remotely. Just read an article today about how the New York City real estate market isn't recovering because no one's going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody wants to go to work. Everybody likes working in their jammies if they can get away with it. So, you know, to some degree and, and, right. and so on. So, but one of the things that I think a lot of maybe owners are wrestling with is what's the proper way to think about technology enablement, right? You hear about whether it's AI or just, you know, newer CRMs and newer ERPs. And, and, and I have found that sometimes owners talk about it like they think if they can only get the right app or the right platform, It'll make their business run better. And they've been sold that, right? Software companies tell you all along, right? Every every ERP implementation ever made was on the promise of, don't worry, this will pay for itself in 18 months. Um, so what, what is your advice to the you know privately held businesses looking at technology as a lever? And maybe there's other things they should be looking at instead in terms of just how they manage people and, and things like that. So if you could just comment on that, that'd be great. This is something that I've been dealing with for 50 years. Uh, I launched my technology efforts 50 years ago by trying to help organizations understand how to use technology. So your question is fascinating to me because I've, I don't get it asked that way very often. The, the key is very, very simple. All a computer is is hyped up human power. It's not gonna do anything that a human being can't do. So understand first and foremost, that if it's something that you can't do or you can't have somebody else do, a computer's not gonna do it for you. If you have things you wanna do where you need more precision, more speed, more capacity, a computer will do that for you. Think mm. about storage. You can put, a hundred square foot, fill a hundred square foot room from ceiling to floor, wall to wall, and it can be put on a piece of silicone smaller than a fly's wing. That's a capacity issue. That's not a capability issue. So the answer to your question is start by having a clear understanding of the strategic goal you're desiring for your business and what it will take to achieve that goal and then look for where the human element 
needs to be minimized or maximize capacity and then look for the technology that can do that. Don't be led around by the marketing of technology companies. Mm. You need this. You can't survive with that. The, the <laughs> marketing, you have to have this. Don't let them win that battle. This is your business. Mm. You plan the strategy. You plan the di direction. You decide what needs to happen. And remember, all that tool is is leverage. Let me use AI as an example. You have one company that uses AI to write its newsletters. And it gains a lot of leverage because it, it gains a lot of readers because it does a good job of attacking the market. But the AI doesn't understand who the right market is. So you don't get a lot of buyers. You get a lot of subscribers. Okay. They take another guy who's writing a newsletter and they write that newsletter personally because they know their market and then give it to AI and say, tell me where this can be improved to enhance this point I'm trying to make. And let the AI give you that. And then don't take the AI's answer as the answer. Take it and revise it, edit it, make it personal, and go with it. Now, that's something that you could hire a professional writer to do for you, but AI will do it for you for free. That's an example of what I mean by using it properly. Okay. So it's, it's leverage toward achieving a goal that you have, not the goal that the marketers told you you should be thinking about. Yes, absolutely correct. The, the technology industry survives and thrives because it creates solutions to problems that don't exist <laughs> and convinces people they need to buy them. Don't let that happen to you. Okay, no, that's good. That's really good. And I, I you know, I, I think I see a lot of wisdom in that thought, Larry. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, as, as you think about those strategies, those going forward, like as you said, and where technology might fit, not fit. One of the other challenges that I think a lot of owner-led businesses have is with their workforce, right? One, just being able to recruit enough talent to do the job because they're, they're, they're still amazingly still open spots where people just can't fill spots. And then, you know, what also comes, especially in a lot of privately held business where you may have people that have been there for 20 years, 30, you know, like a lot of longevity, you may have a little bit more than that than you do typically in like corporate America. So you have this generational divide now, right? Where you have people that have been there 20 years, 25 years with the business. And then you have people that right out of college because you need to hire people. And it seems almost like, and I don't know if you agree with this, almost an unprecedented divide I mean, there's always been multi-generations in every business, of course, but there seem to be more common ground across those generations before. Now it just seems a little bit like, like two alien species trying to coexist. So, so what's up with that? First of all, is that a true observation? And secondly, what do you do about it? Yeah, it, it is true. And I want to connect it to the concept of change in the world getting faster and faster and more chaotic. It's been very common since the industrial era to have two generations in the workforce. We started having three generations in the workforce when the boomers came in because we still had some of the pre-World War II generation working. Mm -hmm. And it really didn't have an impact until we got to the boomers being the oldest in that group because you have the boomers and the Xers and the Zers and the Zers had a lot of conflict with the Xers and the boomers didn't know how to deal with that. Today, we have four. That's unprecedented. We have never had four demographically different generations in the workforce at the same time. Mm. 
Hmm. And that creates a very simple problem, which leads to a very simple solution. But again, it's not very intuitive. Words are powerful. And words are based in context. So when you use a word with somebody who's 60, and you use that same word with somebody who's 25, their background, their experience, the context in which their familiarity with that word is based is different. And they mean two different things, same word. So when you have those people working closely together, not only do they have an almost built-in inability to communicate. Remember, we're in a business world here. We're not going to the bar and have a conversation, right? right? We have stuff to do. We don't have time to sit here and debate what a word means. You end up with a lot of conflict and you end up with a lot of decisions that are misunderstood and comments that are misunderstood and misrepresentation and then emotion gets in the way of things. I'm dealing with that a lot right now because the world that I specialize in involves a lot of growth and with good companies. And that leads to a lot of new blood and a lot of long tenured blood. And when those conflicts arise, what I have to do is bring leadership and those two different groups of people together. And I start by talking to them about what words mean to them. And they begin to see how is it possible that computer or technology means three different things to this group of people. Hmm. How is that? It's technology. No. What about insurance? No. We can't agree on what the word insurance means. Are you kidding me? Let's have a conversation about that. How can we solve this problem? So you got to get them to slow down and recognize that they are not communicating with people outside their group in a way that's being heard as it was intended. So we have to be very careful and deliberate about the words we use. And if we care about those people we're working with because we like the company and we like our job and we theoretically like our coworkers, right? You have to be conscious of how they react to what you're saying. And when you do that, it does two things. It creates a greater level of engagement because now I have to understand what my colleagues doing. Before it was my grandpa. And right. I don't want to have to deal with him or it was my grandson. And I don't even, you know, I have a hard time enough with him just playing with him. But now we both have a common cause. We're both trying to accomplish something. We're both trying to deliver value to those customers. So we are now engaged in understanding what each other is doing, not what we're talking about, but what we're trying to do, which gives you a common platform to talk. And the second thing is it does is it allows you to do collaborative teamwork. And suddenly people are saying, you know, that's great. I didn't know that's what you're doing. Is there any way I, you could do this? That would make my job easier. Or would it help you if I did this that way? Would that make your job easier? I'm telling you, it is, it is amazingly transformational to see this happen because it happens. I mean, it can happen in, a, in less than 60 minutes if you get the right people in the room and you have the right conversation. Now, at some level, what you're describing is the need for like essentially a cognitive process, recognizing that words can mean different things to different people and so on. Do you run into or ever run into a case where, and I'm not picking on any of those generations, it could be any of them, where they say, well, I know what the word means. They got it wrong. You know, where there's a, it's not just, I don't want to know what they think it means. I'm, they should, they should see it the way I see it because I'm right. Yeah. 
That's very common. And unfortunately, it exists in two of those four generations. It, it, it exists in the generation that is older than the boomers, which is coming back into the workforce, right? That's the post-World War II generation. Right. And it exists in the generation X, which is the, the next one. So it's like the first one, then the boomers, and the next one X, and then the, the Zers, right? So you've got the, 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 the two that are separated from each other where that problem comes. And the problem with the first group is they're used to being seen as the experts. They're not used to being questioned. And the problem with the Xers is they just don't give a damn what anybody thinks. <laughs> they just don't care. They think they're entitled. Now, I want to be careful here. When you throw a blanket over a group of millions of people, right? you cannot possibly be talking about every one of them. They're sure. not all like this. And it's about a tendency. And it's, you know, I, sometimes I get people who want to argue with me and say, well, I'm not like that. I'm a Gen Xer and I'm not like that. It's like, well, listen, listen to yourself. Just listen <laughs> to yourself. And I'm not saying you are. I'm just trying to help you live in this world. And <clears throat> what I say to them, and it depends. Of course, every circumstance is different. But what I try to do is explain to the older people, yeah, but you had your time. You were the boss. You know, you've watched this your whole life. You've seen how your desire to suppress change, to keep things the way they were, didn't work. Mm -hmm. You've seen it, and now you're back at work, and you know you can't do that. Stop pretending. Stop making a fight. You don't want to fight. You're trying to enjoy the best years of your life. Knock it off. And I say to the extras, look, you're close to being done. You've done a lot. You've had your way a long time. What are you looking for a fight for? If you're looking for a fight, I tell you what, go someplace else, find another job because this ain't the place for it. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, Jose, I've said that to more than one person in more than one company. Uh, often it's, look, you're the reason this company is successful. If you don't like the rules that have come in place because the company's grown and gotten more complex, that's fine. Quit, go find another company to help, but stop complaining about the success you created. And, and with extras, it's a little different. It's like, look, you're a part of this success. Are you trying to destroy it? Or are you trying to enjoy your world? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with you? Why, why is this so hard for you? Do you want to fight with people at work? Or do you want to have fun with people at work? And there is no perfect answer. Sometimes people are in jobs they don't belong in. Sure. Got to not be afraid to say, this is not where I belong. Right? That's the role of leadership is to set the tone, set the culture, set the direction, set the vision. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to act. And, and some of those dimensions or some of those issues aren't really even generational challenges. Having the wrong people, you know, to use the, what is it, uh, uh, you know, the idea of being the uh, wrong person in the wrong seat on the bus. Yeah, I think that's right. Covey. Yeah, right. So you got to figure that out. And yeah. um, so that's that's very powerful. Now. Uh, Larry, you also uh, have a book out. I just want to give you a moment to talk about that because I think it's important. I'm sure it carries some of these same themes. So just tell us a little bit about that and uh, and also just mention where people can get a copy of the book if they were interested in it. Yeah, thank you. Um, the book has a pretty, I've been told a pretty compelling name. It's called Businesses Don't Fail, They Commit Suicide. And the subtitle is How to Survive Your Success and Thrive in Good Times and Bad. Um, here, here's the thing, Jose. I, when I was young, my dad said to me, 
So I'm fifth generation in a family-owned business. And we started in the 1850s in hides and furs. And I like to say I have 170 years of, of business experience. <laughs> and because we really did pay it forward. My family was very proactive about paying good business practices forward. And look, we, we survived for 170 years. And we were in many different industries. That organization went through a lot of evolution, particularly going from an agrarian, you know, an agrarian economy to an industrial economy to mm. a, a technology, an information economy. It's not easy to do. And one of the things my dad said to me was, I wonder how we got to over 300. We were in the auto parts business. He said, how in the world did we go from 300 new car manufacturers to three in just 30 years? How in the world is that? How do you have 300 companies start and die in 30 years? I, I don't understand that. And I couldn't get my head around that. I wanted to know why businesses <laughs> failed, period. So I set on a track to answer the question. Why do businesses fail? I spent 23 years of primary research, created a theory, spent six years doing proof of concept, and have been practicing it now for about 20 years. The reason I wrote the book is because I want it. Leadership is successful when they have experience. It, it's not knowledge. It's not expertise. It's experience. Sam Walton once said, was asked, how do you make good decisions? No, he was asked, how are you so successful? He said, I make good decisions. He said, how do you learn how to make good decisions? He said, experience. He said, how do you learn how to get experience? He says, bad decisions. <laughs> the only way to get experience is to fail or to try. Mm -hmm. Experience provides the ability to recognize the early signs of an imminent change. Remember, change is the thread through all of this, mm -hmm. right? Which is a risk event and gives you the opportunity to react properly. When you can anticipate impending change, you can recognize that a period of increased risk is coming and it needs to be mitigated with planning and preparation. Unfortunately, the, the nature of business failure is unmerciful and developing experience is expensive and traumatic. That's why I wrote this book. The primary objective of this book is to replace the experience of failure with foresight so business suicide can be averted. This is a how-to book on what you need to do to progress through the stages of maturation of your organization, corporate life cycle theory, and create sustainable, profitable growth that will survive generations. That's what this book is about. And I have to be honest and tell you that I'm getting some recently released a month and a half ago. I'm getting reviews from people telling me that they were really surprised. The first three chapters were a classic business book. They had to chew through it. It was hard. They actually had to think. And they hit chapter four, which is a, a, a transitional change in the book, that, hey, it started to be fun. I was actually having fun. And suddenly I realized in chapter eight, and I'm like, holy moly, this is actually uh, enjoyable to read because it's filled with stories and it's filled with anecdotes, and it's filled with quotes, and everything in the book is real. I've changed a lot of the names, obviously, because of confidentiality reasons. Sure. But, you know, one of my favorite stories in there is the case of the $365,000 check. I went to one of my clients and found a check for $365,000 that was about four years old, and nobody knew. Now, if that doesn't intrigue you. Wow, yeah, that... that... Read the book. <laughs> Somebody has some 
as well, remember the old uh, I Love Lucy. Somebody has some explaining to do. Yes. Well, and it when you when you understand the whole story, you understand that it makes sense, right? Because that amount of money was a drop in the bucket of this publicly traded company. Nonetheless, even big business fails. Sure. And and this book will again, this is not my wisdom. This is my research coupled with my interpretation of the data. And I think it's powerful. It's what's made me what I am today. It's what's made me successful. It's what made me able to do what I do and live my life and enjoy myself. And this is part of my give back. I I mean, if somebody needs this and wants it, call me, I'll give it to you for free. I'm not trying to sell books. I'm trying to help people save their business and create better business environments. That's fantastic. Larry, first of all, it's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom and your experience. Thank you. And if somebody listening wanted to know more about you and your work, certainly your book is one. Uh, I'm assuming that's on Amazon uh, if they want to get the copy of the book. If they wanted to contact you or learn more about your business, where should they go? Yeah, this is very simple. Uh, businesses don't fail. All you have to do is remember that. Businesses don't fail.com. Okay. That's That'll great. take you to the book. And from there, you can get to my website. You can get to my blog. It's called the Mandel blog. There's couple of hundred posts in there there's some really funny stuff in there and um and yeah you can find this on all of them uh, uh google play itunes amazon barnes and it's it's everywhere you're going to find any books and there's there's the kindle and the paperback but all you got to remember is businesses don't fail.com.com love it Lan larry mandelberg thank you for joining us today on business growth on purpose really appreciate it jose my pleasure thank you Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.